When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've all seen the t-shirts. They're everywhere. Life is good. You see it at the airports, at the mall, just walking around, soccer practice, everywhere. You can't escape life is good. For my whole life and many of our entire lives, life is good has been everywhere. And I've always been kind of curious, what's the story behind life is good? What does this mantra, what does this mean? And why have so many people taken hold of this? It's a simple phrase, life is good. Today, I am so excited because I got the chance to have a conversation with John Jacobs, one of the co-founders of Life is Good, and we get to dive into the wonderful story of how Life is Good was created. We got to dive into the story of how John's humble childhood led to him creating Life is Good years later with his brother, Bert, and how this simple idea spread around the world and ultimately made a huge impact in so many ways. This is Sounds Good with Brandon Harvey. I am Brandon Harvey, and every single week we have conversations with people who are rejecting cynicism and living their lives full of optimism, joy, and ultimately making a difference in the world. And so I'm absolutely honored to be able to share this episode. So without any further ado, let's just jump straight into this. This is my conversation with John Jacobs, the co-founder of Life is Good. John, so I have been seeing and loving the Life is Good logo almost my whole life at this point. You know, we were talking beforehand. I'm fairly young. And so I actually haven't lived much of my life without Life is Good being around. And in many ways, up until recently at least, it's been so ubiquitous that I never really questioned where it came from. And uh, and so now I'm excited to be talking with you as, you know, one of the founders of Life is Good. So seriously, thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be on this, and Brandon, th- thanks for what you're doing. I know it's relatively new, this endeavor for you, but it's the antidote in some ways to what what troubles a lot of people, you know, the, the pounding away of, of uh, negative news. Um, if people subject themselves to that, it's, uh, it's not feeding the good wolf, it's feeding the bad wolf within uh, themselves. So I'm psyched uh, about what you're creating and I just hope it grows and I hope we can help you with that. Thank you. That means so much. And yeah, I mean, you guys have been doing this for a long time. Like you've been in this world of things of, of saying, Hey, let's, let's fill the world with more optimism. Let's fill the world with more meaningful hope. And so I'm excited to just like spend this hour, like learning from you. I think that's a pretty sweet deal that I'm like, Hey John, why don't you be on my podcast? And then also I'm going to learn from you because I admire you. Like it's just, it's a total win-win on my end. I don't know why you agreed to this, but I am honored. (laughs) Oh, you gotta be kidding. I, uh, I know it'll be mutually beneficial, (laughs) just the conversation. So, uh, Look forward to it. Thank you. So, I mean, I want to dive back to before you were even making t-shirts. I know that you started Life is Good with your brother, Bert. What was life like for the two of you growing up? Uh, we, we grew up in a, a small town outside of Boston. 
uh, lower middle class family in a really nice town. And um, there was six of us, so eight, eight people in a, in a tiny house. And um, let's see, really tight family, I would say chaotic, as you might imagine, and you know, a fair amount of dysfunction like most families, but pretty tight knit. Um, and I, I suppose we had to be in that house, but, but um, the siblings in particular were really close. Our dad worked in a machine shop. He was a World War II vet who worked in a machine shop and worked with his hands, avid outdoorsman. Our mom kind of ran the daily circus at home and it was to- totally chaotic. But, uh, you know, in general, it was, it was pretty cool neighborhood, other kids playing and stuff. But um, there was definitely some different forces in the house. Like our, our dad, um, both parents were in a car accident when Bert and I were in grade school. And it was a near-death car accident. And fortunately, our mother had a seatbelt on and she just broke her shoulder. She was okay. Our dad wasn't as lucky and um, he lost the use of his right arm completely. And that had a major effect on him as a guy who, who was used to being so handy um, he probably worked and with his hands we, a lot working in the machine shop. Oh, absolutely. And even at home, they do projects with us when we were really little. But after this happened, we, we didn't really know what was going on. We were really young, but it, it, it really took a toll on him mentally because he already had the stress of trying to feed eight people on, on a pretty slim salary. And then this thing didn't allow him to sort of be his best self or, or do what he thought he was you know, really good at. And uh, so he, it led to a lot of yelling in the house, a lot of tension, both yelling at us and our mom a lot. And, you know, we didn't realize probably till we we're out of the house, he was really yelling at himself. He was frustrated and depressed, to be honest with you. Um, that made for a very difficult environment, you know, kind of on a daily basis, a lot of yelling. On the other hand, um, and our dad was a good man. We love him. And, um, and he loved our, his family, too. It was just a very difficult thing to happen to him. And um, our mom was the first powerful optimist in our lives. She had this resilient way of just moving past anything that was an obstacle. And uh, whether it was our dad yelling or it was, uh, you know, one of our older siblings maybe was in trouble at school or something, she just, like, found a way, whether it was... She never had the TV on. She had us like on the floor in the kitchen drawing pictures. She had music playing. She was telling stories. She was singing a lot. I mean, every day. And uh, she she just sort of changed the energy in the house when it could have been pretty negative. And instead, Joan was her name. And she sort of, she created the energy in the house. And the Huge thing, in addition to when I say she this resilient optimism, like she would say things like, I like running out of money because I don't have to worry about what I have to buy, or, (laughs) (laughs) or like, you know, this isn't even optimism, it's just craziness, but like we can understand where it came from. She'd say, like, I I buy the cereals you don't like because they last longer. Or (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is craziness, but that's amazing. Well, one of our favorites is a much longer story, but basically it ends with her insisting that a pie she just made was an apple pie. And we're like, the, the, the friend that was over that had cut the pie was like, it's blueberry, Mrs. Jacobs. Like, it looks great. You know, thank you. And, and she's like, no, it's apple. 
And after like three times of protesting, we're like, mom, it's, it's a blueberry pie. And she's like, no, it's apple. I just ran out of apples. So <laughs> she, she, she just sort of uh, kind of decided how she was going to see things around her. And there's, there's wisdom, as, as weird as that story is, like there is wisdom to deciding what you're going to focus on. And I think that's what your, your newspaper that's starting and your podcast is all about. And it's something we believe in and we really learn from our mother and then later from our customers um, that, how powerful that can be. It doesn't mean you don't acknowledge the bad things. She knew that there was tension in the house and we weren't, you know, we hadn't think, figured things out and we were struggling, but she decided she was going to help herself and everyone in that house to focus on the good. And maybe the most powerful thing she did for us was at the dinner table every night, she'd look around at each one of us and say, tell me something good that happened today. As simple as that sounds, it changed the energy in the house where you might have been, you know, complaining about a, an assignment that was really hard or a teacher or some kid that bugged you at school. Instead, you were going to share one nugget that was funny or positive or absurd. It, it really built momentum in the conversation. We didn't, we didn't really know it at the time, but as you get to like high school age, you're like, whoa, she did that by asking that question. And we would just pull on something crazy. One of the ones we talk about a lot is our, our brother, Alan, went to get a haircut. And this was the 70s, so like he wanted the long hair. Our dad did not want the long hair. And, and so he told the barber, just, just leave my hair long. And then my bar, the barber talked to my dad, and dad said, give him you know, a buzz cut. So he cut half the hair and, and my brother looked up and he's like, no, 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 no. So he ran out of the barbershop. So he had a half of a hairdo and a buzz cut. And we called it Wohawk. But, but we remember talking about it at the dinner table and just cracking up and making fun of Alan. But it was like silly stuff. Our, our brother would find stuff at the dump and like an like a old record that we could play or... Uh, Sports Illustrated magazines or something, or like um, it, it was just nonsense, or it was something genuinely positive. But either way, it kind of lifted the energy in the house, and that all all came from our mother. I'm always thinking about this idea of like, where does optimism come from? Like, why is there a unique kind of person in the world that is an optimist, and then why are there other people? Would you say that? It was something you're born with that it that it comes from a place of of having to deal with, you know, difficulties in life or from a practice or or maybe all three. I don't know. But I, I feel like you've got a few examples of a few different things that might have contributed to your sense of optimism. But it's tricky to think about, like, where did it actually like what's the source? Yeah, I you know, if you had asked me many years ago, I would just say. Our mom, Joan, she's like the hero of our childhood. I've heard statistics that it is, it's something like 40% genetic, according to however they measure these things. 40% genetic, 30% circumstances, and 30% choice. Um, maybe even more choice. For, it's 30 to 40 or something like that, which is huge. Um, so obviously we can't really tweak the genetics, here we are, and then the circumstances, I do think if you're able to power through some 
adversity or challenges, it may raise your your optimism quotient, you know. But uh, but the huge one is that last component, and we do when we wake up every day have a choice, no matter what you're facing. And you've all heard quotes from people who have been through the worst, you know, whether it's chemotherapy or you know going back to um, you name it, and, and they have decided that focusing on the good in their lives and the world around them and others is what brings them happiness. So I feel like that's the most important component and the one you can control, obviously. Mm. Okay. And so take me from this point of, of, of maybe turning into a bit of an optimist of like, despite difficult circumstances, being in this environment and then deciding, Hey, I'm going to like sell t-shirts to say life is good. You know, like what's, what's the in-between in that, in that scenario? Like what, what led up to what I know today is life is good. Yeah, so my brother Bert and I both loved to draw when we were kids and tell stories. And when we were finishing up college, we were looking for ways to combine business and art. We saw t-shirts as an accessible way to do that. So we printed up some t-shirts and we just filled some duffel bags and we got out on the street in Boston, wherever there was some foot traffic, tourist areas or places where there was commuter traffic by foot, and we would just hawk the shirts in the street. And it, it was fun. It was like a little scary at first, like nobody knows us. And we just got this permit, but we don't know what areas it's, it's relevant to. Let's just try here. And so we, we'd walk up down the street and ask people to buy the shirts. And, and we didn't have much luck. But once in a while, you sell a shirt. You have a, an exciting conversation. Somebody says something nice about your artwork. And that gives you enough fuel to keep going. And uh, after about a year of doing that, we actually bought a used van with the help of our brother, Ed. And we dubbed it the Enterprise because we told each other we're going to boldly go where no t-shirt guys had ever gone before. And we, and we uh, ripped out the back seats of the van. We looked at a map. We went to the local library, looked at a map of all the colleges on the East Coast. And we decided we would just pack the van with as many t-shirts as we could and then we would tra- travel around to these dorms, selling door-to-door in the dorms, knocking on every door we could on that campus before we left for the next campus. And we would just sleep on, ba- on top of the T-shirts in the back of the van. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. And we would do, yeah, we'd do like uh, eight-week road trips up and down the East Coast, down as low as Virginia, up, uh, up to Maine. Small or large, any school was, you know, fair game. And we got, you know, we learned a lot in the next five years. That was pretty much our life, um, sleeping in the van and visiting colleges. And your thought process was basically like, who's got a lot of money? College students. Let's go sell uh, t-shirts to college students. That sounds terribly flawed. (laughs) Yeah. And well, maybe that's, maybe you hit on part of the reason why we were wildly unsuccessful financially for these five years. Um, it's funny. I went to a state school and, and there was a difference there between, you know, I love the shirt, man, but I got like five bucks left. And then certain schools, the kids, maybe it's mom or dad's checking account, but maybe they, they can afford to buy, you know, three shirts for, for some friends or their sisters or something. But um, regardless, it was it, it was a lot of fun to this lifestyle um, because we were fresh out of college and mentally, I think we're still in college at this point, but we... Back then, 
we definitely felt like it was still our vibe and our place. So we had a blast and we'd throw the Frisbee around during the day and then we'd try to plot where we want to set up a card table or, or you know, which dorms to hit next or what nights to go to which school. You know, let's hit this prime school on a Wednesday night because Friday everyone's out. Monday, everyone's kind of bummed out or, or, you know, too focused on work. Let's do these prime nights Tuesday and Wednesday at this school, you know. So we, we had kept this journal and literally it had an in and out column with every penny we spent, which was not much. We found ways to get into dining commons. We would, we, you know, obviously we weren't paying for a hotel or anything. So it was like, it was even like a source of pride if you just... We never drank anything but water and occasionally beers um, on the road. So in terms of those five years in the van, I think it's one of those things that's helpful for other people to hear that we were disappointed a lot. And you'd drive six hours to like upstate New York or Pennsylvania, and then you wouldn't be allowed in this dorm or like, or you wouldn't sell one shirt after knocking on 600 doors it was huge that we had a partner in somebody we trusted that was, you know, the funniest guy in our world. I mean, we, Bert and I grew up in bunk beds and nobody can make each other laugh like the other brother. And we had hilarious nights and we had frustrating nights and we'd fight sometimes like brothers, but, but basically we believed in each other and we were open to this adventure. And when we got in the dorms, no matter what the rejection was and what form, like I don't like the graphic, I think I don't like the price or the, the feel of the shirt or whatever. We just write it down. And at first it was really hard to take because it was like, oh man, we're not even going to be able to do this for a few weeks. And then you make a few sales, but you laugh off the rejection. And then the more you hear no, it's like you you get a little stronger because you go, all right, why did they say no? All right, take that down. And if a hundred people say they didn't like the message or the drawing, you better change that for next time. So yeah. it's all about reacting and adjusting. And and that's good. And not getting, you know, if you had just gotten totally down about the things that were said that were negative, it could have killed your opportunity to have those positive experiences where people were like, oh, I love this. And it speaks to a sense of resilience, I guess, that you were able to push through, uh, you know, those difficult times, which, you know, it's a smaller difficult time than, than other difficult times. But I think that the, the metaphor still stands so true. You know, you're, you're working really hard at something you're passionate about getting rejection. And then, uh, and then you push through and you, you find a little bit more success and a little bit more success in your learning. I love that. Yeah. You know, you asked earlier about, People, when they go through adversity, you know, these people have obviously faced much worse adversity than us. I'm thinking of right before we started this run at the dorms in the van, our sister was paralyzed in a ski accident up in Vermont, and she lost all feeling. Slowly, she regained most of her feeling and to the point where she could walk and ride a bike. But her attitude through that, I mean, it just took her a very short period to realize I need to put things in the rear view when they're not helping me get better. So I am going to allow myself a little time to cry every day when she literally had the bolts in her head and couldn't even move her neck or anything. People were visiting her and she's like, I need laughter. I don't need tears. So when you come here, 
make me laugh, make fun of me, you know, whatever it is. And that was one of those examples. And you meet people along the way that have handled the hardest adversity and they make that same decision that I'm going to build this into a positive. I'm going to focus on the good because that's what's going to bring me happiness. That's what's going to help people around me. That's what's going to create good energy. So maybe, you know, when you combine the difficulties in our house growing up, balanced by the strength and resilience of our mom, and then people like Alberta, that's our sister, was so brave and it was such a quick, you know, assessment by her. And to this day, she has the greatest attitude, always brings a smile, good energy to people. So, you know, we were in the dorms, not a big deal that people, even if they're rude, like they, they might say no thanks, or they may say something worse about the shirt, but, but you just suck it up and you go back to the van and it's like, wow, uh, 600 doors and no sales. But it was huge to have a buddy and a brother like with you, laugh it off, talk about some of the funny characters you just met and just what's next? Where are we going next? And the combo of traveling, designing, like creating art, traveling, and meeting people were three things we loved. So regardless of outcome, we felt pretty lucky to be doing something we love to do. So um, that's what propelled us for those five years as we floundered around and tried to find something that that clicked with people. And so this whole time... What did these shirts that you were selling like say on them? They didn't say life is good yet at this point, right? A lot of them said nothing, actually. Uh, like, like they were just funky artwork, uh, very musically driven things. We grew up loving the Beatles, the Who, uh, Bob Marley and stuff. So some of them would have more of a Rasta feel. Some of them like hard rock and roll look. But it was mostly just our artwork, which maybe was part of the problem. I mean, we find just short phrases with depth to them really create a, a super strong bond with people. And That's interesting. So, yeah. And people, just, it seems like maybe people just resonated with it more. They're like, oh, that speaks to me. Oh, definitely, definitely. And we'd have our little pockets where you're like, oh, University of Vermont loves the funky, crunchy stuff, you know? <laughs> and uh, University of Hartford, maybe not so much, or, or maybe... Uh, and then these random schools were like magic for some reason, like uh, Susquehanna or anyway, there was, there was pockets we would find that it was like, these are our people. But in general, we did not sell a big volume of T-shirts and we could barely call it a business. We were just, you know, floundering around trying to find something that, that clicked with a lot more people. That's so cool. That's so interesting. And then at what point did the phrase life is good like come into play? When did this like when was this idea birthed? So one conversation we had a lot on the road, this was before cell phones, was like we just had a lot of time to talk. It was how the media seemed to inundate people with negative information. And whether we were in the dorms or we were out on a street with a card table selling to people, we couldn't help but notice people talking about the latest disaster, fire, murder. And it's like, really? This is, this is what's taking up their mind space right now? And again, we acknowledge those things happen. They're terrible. And there's people out there trying to help specifically whoever the victim is in most cases. But to, to project those stories over and over around the globe, 
it's not helping a lot of people. In fact, it's, it's scaring people into staying in their house. It's making people feel like every other person in the world is a, is a wacko. Um, and it, it really, I, I heard a talk one time about how we went from being a front yard, front porch nation to a backyard nation with a fence. And I, I look at the me- media, whenever they found that formula, how, how to drive people to watch again is to scare them. That, that's deeply embedded in our DNA is this fight or flight instinct. If there's anything threatening, you better pay attention to it. So whenever the news found that out, which is many decades ago, they just, and, and I speak very broadly, obviously there's very, there's balanced news outlets and there's positive news, news outlets, you being one of them. Um, but a lot of the mainstream media in their battle for ratings, they just prey on people's fear. And that, that really bothered us. It still bothers me to, today. But um, at the time, we just wondered if there's anything we could create that would help people focus on the good. Could we create a rallying cry for optimists? And uh, we, we got back from a long road trip. And right around the mid-90s, we rented a little dive apartment outside of Boston so that we could do custom work out of it because the, the road sales were not really doing it. And we were, you know, in jeopardy of just having to bag it all. And so we were doing custom work for like softball teams or, or uh, you name it, corporations, anyone who wanted caricatures done, stuff like that. And we're having fun with it. But when we got home, we would invite our friends to a keg party and we'd ask them, to give us feedback on drawings. So we, we taped a bunch of stuff up on this one room in our apartment. And we had friends over for this party. It was great to catch up with them after being on the road. And they would write right on the wall or on, on the piece of paper like what they liked and didn't like. And the next morning after this party in 1994, we got up and there were so many comments around this one drawing. And it was a, a face that's come to be known as Jake. And one girl had written, this guy's got life figured out. And he's just got this big grin. He's got a beret. To us, it was a symbol of free thinking and maybe a a counter to the stigma of an artist being this sort of uh, listening to depressing music and being isolated. And we just felt so lucky to be creating. And we loved people so much. Maybe it came out of there, but that drawing was one of a hundred on the wall. And there were so many comments around it. We were just like, we got to do something with this guy. And when we read that, that girl's comment, we, we kind of distilled that and the other comments down to three simple words, life is good. And those, those three words changed our wow. lives forever. That's incredible. Yeah, thank you. The, the very next week, we printed our first Life is Good shirts and we took them to a street fair in Cambridge. And we had done these things for years we were used to selling about a dozen shirts in a day and we put out all our designs, probably a dozen of them uh, out on the table and the fair started at 11 o'clock and we had 48 shirts with life is good on them printed one design, just Jake's face with a funky little pattern around it and said life is good under it. Within the first hour of that fair opening, all 48 shirts had sold out. It was like nothing we had ever seen. Every Kind of every walk of life, like Harley Davidson guy, school teacher, skateboard kid, they're all looking at all the designs and then they'd hone in on that one pile. And it was wild and it, and it 
confirmed what we had hoped that no matter what's going on in people's lives, whether it's a major struggle or everyday struggle or everything's going great, they want to they they want to gravitate to the positive. And that's such a fascinating idea, the fact that it's this diverse group of people, Harley Davidson people, school teachers, like it it speaks to this idea of being a rallying cry for optimists. You said that a minute ago. It seems like that it really was successful as a rallying cry. And that's it's so cool to me to think about how the this like I, I want to say a little, little subculture, maybe the subculture of optimists, they transcend all other subcultures. You know, there, there's a little pocket of optimism inside of the world of Harley Davidson. There's a little pocket of optimism within the teacher world. There's the little pocket of optimism within all these things. That's so cool to think about. And we actually need people on all parts of the spectrum. Like it doesn't mean everyone's skipping to work and, you know, just like singing through their day. Um, We talk about that at work these days. Like it's actually helpful to have the people that have a certain amount of optimism, but a certain amount of caution because they balance those of us who tend to see everything as opportunity and positive and, Um, So I love the fact that you're pulling, no matter what the background demographic theme of their life is, there's there's a a certain part of them that has that optimism in them, and it's a matter of how much they show the world, how much they lean into it. And um, it was cool to see on that very first day that it really didn't matter what the background was. It's something much deeper inside us that wants to gravitate to the positive. And we found that later, whether it was wartime or the economy tanks or terrible tragedies happen, people, even more than an average time, they want to gravitate to the positive and they actually want to help it grow. So that very first day, we knew we had what we had been looking for for over five years. We just didn't know what to do with it. Man, that's crazy to think about like that first day where you're like, okay, this is really starting to happen and people are resonating with this. You know, I I know that there's so much that went into this process, but maybe give me the short form version of how this thing blew up in such a big way. You know, how life is good. You know, like I'm about to fly on an airplane tonight and I have no doubt that I'm going to see, you know, a dozen people wearing some sort of life is good t-shirt or hat or water bottle, you know, something like that. Like it's ubiquitous. And yeah, maybe like what's the short form version of, of how you guys started to grow this thing and lean into this thing and, and how it started to spread, I would imagine also organically outside of you guys. Sure. Well, you know, we didn't really know how retail worked, but we decided to go door to door, just like we had done in the dorms and ask people if they would sell life as good. And (laughs) we didn't... We didn't have much luck with that, and then we we drove down to Cape Cod, and we jumped in the ocean, which the ocean always gives you the answer. I always ask Mother Nature uh, and and Mama Ocean if you need if you need answers. So we we got out of there and we started driving around in the van to little beach shops, and we found one finally that would take twenty four Life Is Good shirts and try them out. And lo and behold, the next week we got a call from this woman, Nancy, and she gave us what she called a reorder, which is a term we had never heard um, up (laughs) to that point. And we were pretty fired up. And on the same call, she reminded us that she was right next to an ice cream shop. And she said, does that Jake character by any chance, does he eat ice cream? 
And Bert and I were in this that little dive apartment. We're looking at each other. We're like, no, but give us about two hours and a purchase order, and he will. So we, you know, went to work designing Jake with an ice cream cone. And same thing happened with her sister-in-law up in Vermont. I had a store near a bike shop, and it's like, of course, yeah, Jake rides a bike. So the whole <laughs> the whole story of life is good is just being open and listening, like. It was we. I didn't even mention, but Bert and I did a cross country road trip uh, as I was finishing up college, and we had an absolute blast. We traveled for a couple months across the country after I did a semester, actually a year, out in California, and we we kind of came up with the idea of working together on that trip. But then, if you look at our whole story, like it was the friends at the party that said, "This guy's got life figured out." And now it's the retailers telling us, you know, this guy can do anything, anything that celebrates something positive and healthy in people's lives. Go ahead. So we suddenly had the coolest job, we thought. Well, all we have to do is listen to people about what they love and then help them celebrate it. So whether it's hiking or hanging out with your dog or going to the beach or riding a bike, like any of these things, they felt good to us. So we just designed them. We ship them to retailers, and boom, all of a sudden, we're getting reorders really fast, and we're learning the nuts and bolts of business because we're really not, not just, we're not brilliant business people. We don't even know the basics of business, but this idea is so powerful that it just propels us forward. And so we're taking notes and learning as fast as we can, and we've got some sales reps now, and we pick up a few employees and the the brand spreads. I mean, there's, there's longer stories about first employee, really funny one where a girl moved in upstairs from us and we were like, whoa, this thing is growing. Like, great, can you help us at night? She had a real job. And after helping us for a few months, we asked her to jump on board. And she, she took a wild chance in joining us. She's now a partner at Life is Good. Um, that was a long time ago. But basically... We, we start to distribute around the country. We're adding new products, hats, backpacks, Frisbees. Meanwhile, we start getting letters from people, and some of them are simply, hey, thanks for helping me celebrate the mountains. I love to go to this mountain and hike or ski. Uh, this, thanks for helping me celebrate my time with my family, with my dog. I love road trips. I love playing music, etc. But we didn't count on these other letters, and we got so many of them so quickly from people facing great adversity, people who were in the hospital going through chemo, and they said, they said, you know, your life is good hat, help me stay positive through the worst times, or, you know, we lost our brother, and we all wore life is good to the memorial service because we wanted to celebrate the spirit with which he lived, he always wore your product, and we didn't know what to do with these stories. We, we were just trying to figure out the business and we would tuck these letters in a drawer and it would take us years to figure out all we need to do is share these letters. So we started doing it internally. We would get up at company-wide meetings. The company wasn't big at this time, but I don't know, maybe, maybe 40, 50 people. And we would just read a letter to remind us all that we're not just designing t-shirts and shipping product out. We're, we're actually having this conversation with people and helping them to focus on the good. It's and the huge why behind what you're doing. Exactly. And there were t 
tears from people in these meetings, but also just this renewed sense of purpose. And people had this bounce in their step. And the more we read these stories, the more fired up we got about what the potential of this brand could be. And initially, I think a big focus was, hey, people are being bombarded with negative news. Let's help them focus on the good in their lives, in others, in the world. But there was this deeper layer that we learned from these incredible letters. We called them fuel letters because this is what powered us forward. This is what made us want to grow this company as big as we can and reach as many people and eventually kids with our Kids Foundation. But I'll I'll get into that later. But they are the heart and soul of this brand is that community of people, particularly the ones that have faced the hardest adversity because those are often the people who have this elevated sense of gratitude and they have a clearer perspective than anyone on what's important in the world. And they don't waste time bitching about the weather or uh, traffic or things we can't control. It's like, I am so lucky to be alive. And And there's one message that we got Cumulatively, one letter called out the phrase, but it was sort of the spirit of all these letters. And and the phrase is get to instead of saying have to. And we use it all the time at work. Like instead of saying, I have to work late today, I have to go to a meeting, I get to do these things because I have a job. Um, I have work that has purpose. I and, And you can apply it to your personal life. And I'm not implying me or any of us have this down pat. We all have moments where we feel overwhelmed. You feel like a martyr. Sometimes you're balancing so much. But this thing is such an easy tool to reach for. And instead of saying, you know, I have to go to the grocery store, I get to go to the grocery store because I live in a land of abundance. I get to pay the bills, actually, because I have a roof over my head. This was taught to us from our community. And if you listen to the people in your lives or read some of these stories on our site or watch some of the videos, like they remind you that it really is your perspective. When you wake up, we all have that choice of what we're going to focus on. And if they can do it when they've faced near death, when they've wrestled with chemotherapy, when they've lost loved ones, and yet they have this this rock solid foundation of gratitude and they don't float very often or, or they, they have a, a tool with which to get away from the whole martyrdom, I have to, this is so tough. Yes, life is tough. It's not easy. It's not perfect, but it's good. And it's mm-hmm. really about what you choose to focus on. I think that's so, so important because I think that in this world of optimism, I think it's really easy for people to confuse optimism with irrational cheerfulness or blind positivity or even escapism. But that's, you know, that's not at all what you guys are diving into. And that's not what I think anybody who genuinely cares about, you know, this meaningful optimism uh, is getting at. Because, you know, you're getting these stories of people saying like, I'm in this difficult, terrible circumstance, but I'm still choosing to focus on what's hopeful. Or, you know, even uh, you and, and your own story and, and, and your mother and your father and, and your sister, you know, the story of, of, of you guys remaining hopeful within difficult times growing up. Like, that's powerful. And I think that that's, 
I would imagine that people are immediately drawn to, yeah, cool, life is good. But I think that they stick around for and connect on a deeper level with this idea of like, life is good, even though, you know, it's, it's, it's that second half where it's like, it, it's good despite the difficulties. And, and that's where the power comes from. You're so spot on, Brandon. And when we say life is not easy, life is not perfect, life is good, people get it. I mean, Bert and I, my brother and I do a fair amount of speaking and we published a book a few years ago. Those are the parts that really resonate. When you have the time to tell a longer story, people get the depth. And I, don't, I wouldn't blame people if someone saw a shirt, you know, Jake with an ice cream or riding a bike or or you know, just a mountain and, that says life is good, it's hopefully beautiful art and maybe they just want to celebrate that. That's very cool. When they do understand the deeper meaning, it is a whole new level of loyalty. And we have a really tight community of actually three million people online that love to share these stories with each other. And that's the backbone of this brand. And the book we published, every chapter features, features one of these letters. It's so good. I've got it like right here next to me right now. Oh, right on, right on. They're the heart and soul of the brand and we continue to learn from them. And it, that's why it's been a co-authorship, the story of Life is Good. It happened to start with Bert and I, then we hired some people smarter than us in a lot of areas. But really, we really did, Brandon. I mean, we, we and, and that was a, great lesson to learn early with Kerry Gross, our, that partner that I mentioned, who handled a lot of things faster than we could and had strengths that we didn't have. And then later, as the business grows, you realize, okay, I'm not so good at operations or finance or um, IT. So lean on somebody who's, who's good at it. And that allowed us to grow and it allows Bert and I to stay more in our wheelhouse of the creative side. And so, remind me again, really quick, what's your title at Life is Good? It's something amazing. It was Chief Creative Optimist. Chief Creative Optimist. That's perfect. That's so good. Okay. And along those same lines, you mentioned this a minute ago, but tell me about the Kids Foundation because I feel like kids have been such a huge part of this Life is Good story. Obviously, kids see the world in like the most incredible way. And every day I'm like, okay, how can I see the world a little bit more like kids? But like, tell me about how you transitioned life is good from, you know, just being a t-shirt brand to being a t-shirt brand that, you know, also in some ways gave back and, and, and gave back especially to kids. Well, Brandon, if you think of a, a young kid who has love in their life, they tend to view the world with arms wide open. They're exploring, they're engaging, they're asking questions, they're adventurous. On the other hand, if you've got a kid maybe who's lacking that loving adult in their life, and or they're facing everyday poverty or violence, witnessing violence or victims of violence or, or they're facing a life-threatening illness, it's really hard to live that way. And in contrast, you tend to live your life with arms folded and full of fear and you wake up in the morning and you've got that cloud of fear right in front of your face. And it's hard to break that, but it's possible. And we realize there's a lot of kids out there in that situation. Life isn't easy. Life isn't perfect. Is there a way to help make life good for more kids? And so we created the Kids Foundation, especially after hearing all these letters from people, and to try to help build this kind of resilience in kids. So at first, it was hosting these play therapy groups. 
um, directly with the kids and we felt great about those. And then we realized we could have more impact by working with the childcare providers, the teachers, the counselors, the real heroes in the trenches that are working with kids every day. And so we created trainings for them to help childcare providers retain and nurture their own sense of curiosity and openness and optimism and playfulness because those positions, it's pretty easy to get burned out um, in, in, when you're in a difficult environment. So if we can keep those people strong and give them the tools to retain their own optimism, man, you, you can't give what you don't have. So those people can deliver that optimism to the kids, to lift them up. And so we have these evolved trainings that get better every year. We call them Life is Good Kids Foundation Discoveries. And now we're having much larger ones around the country. We're working with programs like Head Start. We're working directly with these organizations that have already pulled together these child care providers. And we're now improving the quality of care for over 1 million kids every year. And we, we feel like we're just getting started. And these are heroes Heroes right on our team. I'm not talking about myself or Bert. We've got a, a group called Life's Good Playmakers that work under the Kids Foundation. And these are people making life-changing, positive differences in the, kids, the lives of kids every day. And this is our home team. We're actually integrated nonprofit and for-profit in the same office. And where, where the for-profit tries to bring awareness and funding to the nonprofit, the nonprofit pays us back so well with what they do for us culturally. We just had an internal discovery on Friday where our leaders get together and make sure that we're living and being the brand ourselves and, and how we can help each other to, to be more playful at work, to have more fun. And believe it or not, that stuff all makes for a more productive team. You know, it's not, it's not this softer, fuzzy side. It's like, no, if you get a bounce in your step, if you're having laughs, if you're actually moving your body, all this stuff helps you become more productive and you quite simply happier. So um, we're, we're trying to bring that to a lot of kids who have a difficult life at a critical young age. And um, we're really proud of the work that the Kids Foundation is, is doing. And again, we feel like we're just getting started. Man, along those lines of this idea of being you know, in the trenches, working in a world where, you know, it's it's difficult to see kids having a hard time and you guys are saying, hey, let's do something about it. What are some other ways that, that that's happened over the last, you know, who knows how many years of you guys existing? You know, what are, what are the times where you felt like instead of just like being high in the sky with, with optimism, you, you were more so down in the trenches, maybe a little bit overwhelmed by the difficulty going on, but, but you had to choose to like push through. What, what does that kind of look like? Well, I will first acknowledge this is sort of one of those times because there's so much strain in our country right now um, mm. and the world, but yeah. particularly in the U.S. in the last year. Um, it's a huge sense of division. Yeah, but I wanted to go back because I, I think of some of the key parts that taught us that optimism is most powerful in the darkest times um, I would say when 9-11 happened, it was a big learning for us because your company's called Life is Good and something like that happens certainly doesn't feel like life is good. 
we questioned whether it was appropriate to even ship our product out. We, the whole country was kind of frozen for a week as we digested what happened, tried to figure out what we can do to help. We had a company-wide meeting, and this woman in our warehouse pointed to a big mural of Jake, our character, and, and uh, she said, what would Jake do in this situation? And um, this real quiet woman from the warehouse raised her hand, and she said, is there some way we could do a fundraiser for the victims and their families? That led to our first kind of large scale. We had done a lot of like basketball tournaments for the Kids Foundation early, things like that on a small scale. But this was like nationwide. Every time we ship this shirt, all the proceeds from it will go to help the victims. Um, it really stunned us how much people rallied around this. It was just a simple, simplified flag graphic that said life is good under it. And we let our retailers know and customers that all the proceeds would benefit the victims. Within the course of like six weeks, we raised $207,000 from that one shirt. And it, not only externally were we helping the victims, internally, I mean, we were all feeling, you know, depleted by what happened. All of a sudden, the warehouse was filled with blank shirts. We were whipping through these big orders, and we knew we were part of the solution. There's no solution, but there's like part of the healing, part of the healing. And that was a big boost to our team and a big learning for us, too. Like, no matter what happens, isn't there a way to be one of the helpers, one of the, one of the people that is making it better? So... We took that lesson, and that was part of the reason for creating the Kids Foundation. Now, 10% of the profits from anything we do go to our Kids Foundation. That means if you work in a company and you design graphics or you pack boxes, no matter what you do, you're helping kids in need. And We love simplicity, and that really helped us simplify things. It really doesn't matter what task you're doing today. You're helping kids in need. And likewise, for customers, if you're doing business with Life is Good, you're helping kids in need. And we, we love the simplicity of that. And then another key moment for us was more recently, 2013, we're right here in Boston and the marathon bombing happens. And our offices were two blocks from the finish line. And we had lots of employees out there at the finish line. And one of our teammates was severely injured, shrapnel, head to toe, went to the hospital. We literally, they couldn't assure us that he would live through the night and we couldn't visit because we're, we're not family. So we waited. And then the next day we went to visit. The first thing he says, his name's John, is I'm grateful to us. And he did not look good, in very rough shape. But he said that because he said he saw people around him that were worse off or didn't make it. And he knew most of his wounds would heal. He's a hero to us. And then if you look at what happened in the aftermath of that horrible act, the news media, the mainstream news media, could not get enough of showing the actual bombing and telling you about the bombers over and over if you chose to watch it or read it. Now, if you lived in the city and you were close to it, what you witnessed was a very different story. You, you witnessed EMTs running in to help the victims right on the spot, risking their lives, you saw runners running an extra mile to donate blood. You saw people giving their cell phones, opening their homes to strangers. You heard about doctors working 50-hour shifts of surgery, 
to help the victims. 50 hours, that's, that's not even an exaggeration. I, I heard these real stories. And you realize that in response to a terrible act of hatred or, or confusion, whatever it was, you have hundreds and then thousands of acts of love just pouring in from the Boston community, then New England, then around the country, then around the world, people are sending funding help and supplies and absolutely incredible. So only a few days after the initial, the bombing, we started getting emails from people saying, you got to do a fundraising shirt. And we were at the moment just focused on making sure our team was okay. We had counselors coming in, speaking to them. And we put it off for a few days, but by the time we took a fresh look, maybe four days after it, there were so many posts on our Facebook and emails. It was like, of course we need to do this. So we designed a simple shirt that said Boston on the front with a little heart and one of the O's, and then nothing is stronger than love on the back. That's all it said. And we posted that on our site, and we told people 100% of the proceeds will go to the one fund to help the victims and their families. And that one shirt in the next four or five weeks sold more than any shirt we'd ever made by far. And we raised over half a million dollars in a super short period for the one fund. And once again, it was like, yeah, we were proud of the city because it's a tough, old, gritty city. And Boston Strong was a very prevalent message, which is a good one. But we were looking for a different message and we landed on that nothing is stronger than love to speak to something bigger that was happening that we wanted to acknowledge. And sure enough, people really took to that message and they supported it. And more importantly, they chose to focus not on the hate, but instead on the love. And that's why we were so proud of humanity on in the aftermath of the bombing. That's just that's really powerful. And it it reminds me of this idea of, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, where I think that the solution to feeling overwhelmed by the negative news and the solution to feeling overwhelmed by the difficult things happening in the world isn't to ignore it and isn't even to put a positive spin on it, but to be a part of the solution, to be a part of fighting back against the negative things happening in the world. And hearing your story, hearing about how you guys are doing stuff with uh, the Kids Foundation and what you guys did right after 9-11 and the Boston bombing, like, that really gets me thinking about, like, people rallied around this so they could feel a part of this. And they they were. They made an impact. They made, you know, so like, they, they brought together so much money to create solutions and I love that not only are you spreading this positive message of, you know, like life is good, like there's difficult things, but life is good, but also that you're allowing people to share that mentality, you know, where where they can say, you know, life is good and I'm going to create a better, like a, a good life for other people. I don't, I'm just, I'm processing through this right now as you're speaking and it's beautiful no, you're, and I love it. You're so right on, Brandon. And when I think of that experience of brainstorming the message for the shirt in a small group, but then all the teammates on our team that, that figure out how to execute it and then the people in the warehouse figuring out the quickest way to ship it and then the retailers realizing by taking this shirt and you know, devoting some of their valuable space to it, 
they're being part of the solution, part of the healing. And right down the line, it feels better to all of them. So I'm just making your point to, that I agree with you completely that the best thing is not to ignore the bad news. It's, uh, it reminds me of Paul McCartney one, one time said a lot of young people come to him and say, you know, there's just so many causes I get overwhelmed. You know, which one should I pick? And he's just like, pick the one you're passionate about and, and just pick one and lean into it. And that's what's going to make a difference. But if you try to look at the whole thing or help a bunch of causes at once, that's actually what we did early, like the first five to eight years of our company. It was just so random. Any friend who had some nonprofit or our head was spinning, but we're like, yeah, we'll donate shirts here. We'll write a little check here or, or we'll, we'll, we'll show up for this event. And it was all well-intentioned, but it was not efficient at all. And I doubt we had, you know, a real broad impact with that stuff where once we honed in and said, okay, making life good for kids facing poverty, violence, and illness. And what's the, what do we think is the most progressive, innovative way to do that? Let's, let's focus on kids three to six and people that are, are facing these challenges. And, you know, before that, there's so many good causes out there that, it's natural to try to want to support anything you hear about, but the more we focus, the more impact I believe we're having. And uh, your your bigger point is well taken and spot on. I think that um, to, for your own happiness and for the betterment of the world, um, getting involved with the healing or the solution is the ticket. Uh, this conversation has seriously been so good. And I wanted to wrap up by definitely mentioning this new thing that you guys are working on called the Faces of Life is Good. And it's just this celebration of people who represent life is good and this mentality of optimism. And we've talked about all these people in this episode who totally like they are the faces of life is good. It's I think about your mother. I think about your sister. I think about the people who have written you guys letters like that are in your book. The people who like your your employee, your teammate who, you know, was in the hospital after the Boston bombing. Like all these people are so inspiring and they are the faces of life is good. But there's so many other people and there's so many other stories. You know, what is it that that you're connecting with most about Faces of Life is Good? Like, what is it that you're connecting with most about all of these people sharing their Life is Good story with you and with the world? Well, I, I think it goes back to what we focus on grows. And I, I realize, we realize the simplicity of just sharing a moment. It doesn't have to be one of these more dramatic stories. And in fact, 90 plus percent of Faces of Life is Good is simply people in their everyday life sharing a nice moment with a friend, with their dog, family, um, uh, just taking off in the mountains, to the beach, you name it. But it's really just about making a choice that I'm going to spend a little mind space celebrating this moment or this place I'm in right now or the people I'm with. And that's, you know, the simplest form these days is just sharing a photo, you know, where I told you about early on, it was these handwritten letters, and we still get those. We love them. It's emails later. We've got videos of, of some of these people's stories. But the simplest thing these days, and something that can bring people joy in an instant, is when you just share a positive photo and become part of this community. And 
we're really just here to help each other focus on the good. And we love you to join us. It's very easy. You go to lifeisgood.com slash this is optimism. Or you can post on Instagram with uh, hashtag this is optimism. That's really it. It's go check it out yourself. It's uh, we do have some some bigger names that have chosen uh, Ali Raisman. We teamed up with some girl empowerment shirts. She's a multi multi gold medal winner, um, gymnastics in the Olympics. She she is the real deal. Super deep values, trying to help girls um, with their strength, independence, and um, just just phenomenal. I love. Love what we did with her or Malcolm Mitchell, one of the Patriots, has an amazing uh, personal story that he shares about uh, really not having the reading skills he needed, but deciding himself he needed to improve them. His story's great. Yeah, but but again, mostly mostly it's just uh, uh, it's almost like those early letters that we got. They would just light us up internally because we know our own team so well. And then to have people from around the world, like sharing their moments, their faces, it's a huge pick me up for our team. And it feels like from the rest for the rest of the community as well. So please, we encourage you to share whatever makes your life good, whatever you want to celebrate, whatever you're grateful for and post it on uh, faces of life is good and, and be part of this community. Brandon's part of this community. Not because his photo is there, which it is, and it's beautiful, <laughs> but because because of what he's doing for the world, choosing to focus on the good and help others to do that too. And you can be part of that, and I hope you choose to. Uh, but Brandon, I, I just want to thank you for having me. And life is good on, man, on your show, man. I'm seriously so honored. I'm. It's incredible. Like I, I wish we could just keep on talking forever. Uh, and and I'm gonna try to because I've got one more question I'd love to ask. And this is kind of the core of of maybe some of what we've talked about today and definitely something that, that I've been thinking about this whole conversation. And, you know, we talked about the different ways that someone becomes an optimist and, and how life is good is almost trying to – it's trying to be a rallying cry for optimists but also trying to recruit more people to be optimistic, you know. And, and the, one of the biggest ways, you know, optimism comes into play is through – choice, you know, by choosing to be optimistic, even when things are difficult for somebody who is facing a difficult time right now and is having a hard time, you know, choosing to be optimistic, to choose to focus on the good, you know, what kind of advice and what kind of comfort would you give them? Yeah. Well, I do think of our sister Alberta as one of many examples of really brave people who talked about putting things in the rear view. It doesn't mean it erases things. It doesn't mean you don't acknowledge the negative things, but what are you going to choose to focus your energy on today? And what are you going to talk about to someone you love, someone close to you? Um, Can you spend time with people who are going to help you focus on the good? Can you outwardly say to each other, let's talk about the good things and build on those. That's what our mom did for us in the kitchen. And that's what our customers have done for us as a business, you know, to, to repeatedly tell us stories about the good. It could be a, literally a sandwich or a, or a walk you took or, or one friend that was really meaningful to you. But when you think about those things, what we focus on grows. It's really true. So, and, and I also want to add that 
there's so much cynicism and snarkiness in the world and so many outlets for people who want to talk about what they're against. Uh, all these arguing shows and stuff. It's, it's really more important. What, what are you for? I'm sure there's things that bother you, but where do you want to spend your mind space? It, it, close to that, very close to that is the choice of what you subject yourself to. Like, do you watch the six o'clock news or pick up newspapers? Or are you really selective about the source of your information? And that can be personal, people in your life. Are they always bringing you down? Or are you going to choose the people that tend to give you things that are positive to talk about and feed the good wolf inside you? You know that old parable? I mean, there's a good wolf and a bad wolf living in all of us. And which one is going to win? The one you feed. So, you know, find sources that bring you positive. And that can't, it doesn't have to be some serious news. That could be comedy. That could be movies you love. But anything that lifts you up and inspires you can can do it for you. And remember, life is not perfect. Life isn't easy, but life is good. Oh my goodness, that was such a fun conversation. I don't know if you guys could hear it, but you could hear me becoming best friends with John. I don't know if I'm John's best friend, but I... <laughs> I love this conversation so much. And there was a lot that really stuck out to me with this conversation. But one of the things that stuck out early on was this quote. He said at the dinner table every night, his mother would ask each of her kids to tell her something good that happened that day. And as simple as that sounds, it changed the energy in the house. And I think that's a really, really interesting idea. And it kind of gets to the core of what I've experienced life is good to be. In the midst of a lot of things going on in John's household growing up, in the midst of uncertainty and struggles, John and his family were still able to find things to be thankful for, things that were still good in their lives. I love the way that John kind of carried this message through the entire episode of even when things aren't perfect, even when there are struggles, when there are problems, life can still be good in the midst of that. I think that's beautiful. Life isn't perfect, but life is good. That's, oh my goodness, I love that. John totally mentioned this during the show. You should absolutely share your story of optimism as a part of the Faces of Life is Good campaign at lifeisgood.com. I'm one of the Faces of Life is Good, and I am so honored, and you should absolutely join me. Lifeisgood.com. You can also follow along with Life is Good on social media everywhere and learn more about John and his brother Bert in their book, Life is Good, the book. I love it. We talked about it in the episode. It's great. If this is your very first time listening to Sounds Good, welcome. We are so glad that you joined us. We hope that this isn't your last episode you listen to. So go and hit the subscribe button. And if you like this episode, I've got two episode recommendations for you to download right now. The first is the conversation I got to have with Bonnie, Kate, and Max, two incredible and creative people who live out this idea of life not being perfect, but life being good, even in the midst of utmost terrible tragedy. Go download that episode. And then also listen to our conversation with Laura Lawson Visconti. Laura is a visual artist just like John is, but every single day, Laura loses a little bit more of her vision. And one day, she may be completely blind. And she shared about the hope that she lives with despite her medical condition. You can find both of those episodes in all of our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you've been listening for a while, please leave us a review on iTunes. We absolutely love reading your feedback and it really helps more people find out about the show. As always, you can find us at goodgoodgood 
Co, where we also make, in addition to this podcast, a physical newspaper called The Good Newspaper. Yes, it's a real newspaper in 2017. And you can also find out about our free good newsletter, where every single week we send out five pieces of hopeful news from around the world. You can also follow us on social media for more good news every single day. We are at Good 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 Co everywhere. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next week with another inspiring conversation with an incredible person. Sound good?